Chapter Twelve of The Riddle Ring by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve. Back to London. Jim Conrad found himself again in London. He had been there for several weeks. It was late in the year, and there was a dull, slight fog, not disguising, but only confusing reality. And even Piccadilly looked dismal, and Jim's heart went metaphorically down to his boots. He shivered mentally over the prospects of the winter. He had been hurt very badly, he told himself again and again, and all there was left for him was to get over it as soon as he possibly could. Life looked very dreary before him, and the only prospect that seemed to attract him was that of going away to some new country on some new enterprise, and not coming back any more. When one is very young, one has such dreams. Later on, men learn that they generally come back from all sorts of places, and that London does not care whether they come or whether they go. That, too, is somewhat of a healthful, invigorating experience, which helps to knock the nonsense out of one. But the experience had not yet come to Jim Conrad, and so he brooded over his personal trouble in his own sort of way. Of course, he was far too manly and too well-trained a youth to show any of his troubles to the outer world. For all his boyish nature, he had a good deal of the reflective social philosopher about him, and he was quite possessed of the fact that nobody cares a straw for the love troubles of anybody else. Jim could remember some terrible bores who used to inflict upon him all the story of their own griefs and failures in love. These were certainly many shades less exasperating than the class of cads, well-born or lowly, who came on him with long tales of their triumphs and conquests in love. For such as these Jim had nothing but contempt, and could not even put on an appearance of patience and sympathy. But the poor fellows who liked to tell of their misfortunes ought by that very right that sacred right of misfortune, to have some claim to be heard by compassionate ears. Yet all the same Jim found them bores, and he was sure they would in their turn find him a bore if he were to ask them to listen to his tale of woe. So he kept his tale of woe to himself, and he suffered much, but without any parade of his sufferings. He did not choose that any doors should peck at his heart, therefore he did not wear it on his sleeve. He quite appreciated his own experiences. He thoroughly understood the vast difference between the sort of sentimentalism in which he had spontaneously indulged himself towards his good-for-nothing first love, and the deep, unsought-for passion with which he was filled for Clelia Vine. In truth, a young man's first love, like a young woman's, is, in ninety-nine cases out of a hundred, a mere phantom and ecstasy. The young man or the young woman is longing to be in love with somebody, and the first alluring figure which comes in the way seems heaven-sent to be the object of homage. Jim now smiled half pitifully, half contemptuously, at his facetious and fanciful attempt at love-making. 
and thought to himself often, even in his present distress, how lucky it was for him that the girl had found a better match, and had frankly thrown him over. Suppose it had been his fate to marry that girl. He would rather, a thousand times rather, have his present disappointment than that sort of success. And yet what a short time had passed since his Rosaline seemed all-sufficing to him, the time before he met Juliet Clelia Vine. Clelia Vine. The name sent a sort of pang through him. Clelia Vine. Was Vine her name now? No, he supposed not. He assumed not. She had probably, for whatever reason, gone back to her maiden name. Mrs. Moorfield always called her Clelia Vine, and yet did not know that she had ever been married. Should he ever come to know her name? Should he ever come to know her husband? It would be strange if he did come to meet him without knowing in the least who he was. Such things were very possible in a place like London, where everybody comes and whence everybody goes, and where, roughly speaking, nobody really knows anything about anybody. Meanwhile, Conrad went about in the usual way. He frequented the Voyagers' Club. He looked into a theatre now and then. He read the morning and the evening papers. He strolled sometimes in the lonely and spectral row. Not many of his more intimate friends were yet in town. There were hardly any doors to open to him. As he put it himself, there was hardly a house where, if he knocked, there was any chance of the latch being lifted. But there were still, or already, a good many of his chance and bachelor friends knocking about town, and on the whole Jim had a fairly good time. He tried over and over again to settle down and begin his first novel, but his mind did not seem to bite into any subject. If he had been really hard up, he would probably have found a story long before but if a young man has enough to live upon for the present without recourse to literature, he is apt to be very fastidious about his first choice of a literary venture. Jim had a vague notion still that he ought to write something about the ring, but it was only a vague notion, and had not consolidated or crystallised itself at all so far. It should be said that he had shown the ring to a London goldsmith and jeweller, with whom his family had long been acquainted, and whom he felt that he could trust. And from this authority he learned that the ring was undoubtedly of an English family pattern, but was apparently made in India, of delicate-fingered Indian workmanship. Some member of an English household, being in India, had probably had a family ring duplicated under the hands of Indian artificers. This may have brought Conrad a little nearer to the gate of the mystery, but it certainly did not furnish him with any clue or thread to guide his way in that direction. It did not seem to give any vitality to his dream in Paris that last night there. He was beginning to be in a sort of way impatient with the ring, in the mood of Alexander when he relieved his mind about the plaguing Gordian knot. He sometimes could have found it in his heart to throw the ring into the Thames or the Serpentine. 
Jim's rooms at Clarges Street were on the second floor. The sitting-room had a balcony and looked on the street. The rooms were modest, like their owner's means. Still, they had what might be called an air of expectancy about them. The younger son of a younger son, if he feels himself conscious of any capacity in himself at all, is always bound to be expectant. Such a youth cannot but think that he will, some day or other, add to his gift of birth, his gift of brains. Now, Jim Conrad had got into the confirmed habit of believing that he had in him that which passeth show. In other words, that he had a literary endowment which would one day be materialised into cheques. Therefore he had set out his sitting-room and bedroom with a certain appearance of luxury. He was fond of great books in precious editions, with uncut leaves and approved bindings. He was fond of first editions and other such costly and keenly competed for possessions. Perhaps he did not greatly care to read the books which he had thus stored up in the precious packets. At all events, if he did read the texts of the authors, and he sometimes did, he wisely preferred to read them in cheap editions. His sitting-room contained some good etchings and some fine prints. Also, there were some colour sketches given him by professional painters and others, mostly, perhaps, by amateur artists who were friends of his, and among his books were counted, it should be said, many presentation copies, chiefly, it is true, by authors who had not as yet achieved supreme distinction. On the whole, there was a look of ease and even of luxury about the rooms which might have beguiled many a fond creditor and have suggested the idea of great expectations. Jim had had his own expectations. A near relative, who was very rich, had once undertaken to have charge of the boy and to make him his heir, but the near relative had, at the age of fifty-five, fallen in love with a pretty and penniless young woman and married her, and become the parent of two children, the eldest a boy and there was an end of Jim Conrad's chances. Jim did not mind very much. The world was all before him, and he had enough to live on in his mother's money, and he thought his uncle was right enough in marrying again. And anyhow, the world was all before him, and he did not care. But his rooms in Clarges Street still bore evidence to the existence of the days when he believed that he was the destined heir to his uncle's fortune. Even yet, when that hope had set for ever, Jim managed to keep on buying curious editions, and had a credit with Hachette for the looking out of obsolete volumes and rare chapbooks. Each man has his own idea of a prize, but unluckily for himself, Jim Conrad had set his heart on a considerable variety of prizes. He wanted the best of everything, and he certainly ought to have had his uncle's fortune in order to gratify his wants. Nobody knew whence he had got the literary ambition which had for a long time filled his mind. Not one of his family had done much, or indeed anything, in the literary way. The Conrads of Northumberland had, on the whole, rather despised literature. 
they were somewhat of the opinion of the German official at one of the small German courts of past days, who, in giving his authoritative directions as to precedence, declared that the professors and the literary men ranked immediately after the boot-blacks. But Jim, thus wholly discouraged, had from his earliest days had a passion for literature and art. He was constantly in the company of painters and poets and dramatists and critics and novelists and the writers of leading articles and such-like folk. He loved the Voyagers' Club because he had a vast yearning for foreign travel, and he made it part of his ambition to scour the seas some day. He had some diffidence when it was first proposed to him that he should be put up for membership at the Voyagers' Club. "'But I have never voyaged,' he pleaded. "'My good fellow,' one of his friends said, "'we are a very old club, and do you know what the travelling qualification is?' "'No, Jim did not know. Five hundred miles out of London.' "'Oh, I think I have accomplished that,' Jim modestly said. "'Would Naples do?' "'Right you are,' his friend replied, and in due course of time Jim was elected a member of the Voyagers' Club. Jim was, on the whole, very happy when he got settled down into his independent bachelors' quarters and the Voyagers' Club. He visited other clubs as well, literary, dramatic, and journalistic. He frequented the first nights at the theatres, and he went behind when the curtain had fallen and was received and welcomed cordially with hosts of other friends by the managers and manageresses and the leading actors and actresses, and drank champagne to their healths and successes, and had a bright time of it generally. Then he knew a good many men in politics, and in fact he had a varied opportunity of studying London life, which he naturally enjoyed. But amidst all these different attractions and distractions, he had pretty well made up his mind that his gift and his desire was to be a writer of fiction, when his love affair came across him, and for the time, at least, knocked all the fiction out of him. Then he went off to Paris to distract his mind away from his love trouble, and then, as we have seen, he fell into a far deeper love trouble. It is very much like that in ordinary life. If you try to get over a light trouble here, you only fall under a much heavier trouble elsewhere. So when Jim Conrad came back to London, he came back utterly hopeless and disconsolate, telling himself that the only thing for him in life to do was to go in dismally for literature, and dismally to stick to it or else to get off on any wild enterprise to some foreign country, and make a career there, or get killed there, and so end. He gave a fair chance to the literary project. He sat down before the desk for hours together, and stared at the paper and his blotting-pad, and could not begin his novel. "'It won't do,' he said to himself. I must try a new career and a far-off country. It was in this mood of mind that he found himself thinking more and more of Mr. Whaley and Mr. Whaley's chief. End of chapter 12